Yeah, the summer series of Life Through the Psalms is ending today, and it ends on the death, uh, on the reflections on death from Psalm 39. If you don't have a Bible with you, I think it would be really helpful if you had the Bibles open in front of you as I go uh, 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 preach from this text. So I invite you to take your Bibles out, and there are Bibles in the back um, that you can take um, if you don't have one with you. Well, questions change as you grow older, don't they? Um, when you're a kid, kids ask all kinds of questions. I used to sell these books, I wonder why, and had all these uh, uh, I wonder why questions that the kids ask. Um, some are like, um, why are, uh, where do the babies come from? Or why are flamingos pink? I think I have a picture of that. Why are flamingos pink? Do you, do you know why flamingos are pink? It's because they eat shrimps. So if you don't believe me, you should go and look it up. It's true. It's because they eat shrimps. And things like, why are skies blue? Why is the sky blue? Well, I still don't know the answer to the question, but kids ask that question. Um, uh, the questions like the, the teenagers ask are different, aren't they? Well, what questions do teenagers ask? Well, it's not a question that I want to bring up here because... It might not be appropriate. Throughout my 20s, I asked different sorts of questions. It was more about uh, who I was going to marry, uh, what am I going to do for the rest of my life. And the questions of 30s is more about family and the career. But as you grow older, the questions do change. And as I'm, I imagine, if I grow old, very old, um, the question, uh, question would be very different. It'll be more about the past rather than the future. And Psalm 39 is a song of an old man reflecting back on his life and asking questions about his life. And he thinks that if he asks this question, he might sin. He might sin. So he says he'll watch his tongue from sin. So he'll put a muzzle in his mouth. He remained, as he says in verse 2, utterly silent. He didn't say anything uh, bad or anything good. He refrained from saying even things that are good because he just opened his mouth. He thinks he might sin. But you know how it is when you are really angry or really frustrated. You just can't keep uh, that down. Uh, that's impossible. So it descript- that's the description in verse 3. My heart grew hot within me while I meditated. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. So this burning question that he he had within him, that he couldn't keep out, keep down, is in verse 4. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. He's not talking about how many days that he has left on earth. He's asking, really, what's the point? What's the point of living this life? How does it all end? And it's hard to think like this in the prime of your days, prime of your life, when death is an abstract idea rather than an imminent end to everything that you know. But the psalmist is an old man, and as he thinks about, the pa- about his life, about death, that death has this sharpening effect. It, it makes you think about all the essentials of life, the things that are most important. It makes you question your life. Philosophers have asked this question. 
What's the meaning of life? And philosopher、um, George Santanaya said, "It's the acme of life to understand life. It's the height of life to understand life, to know what it means." Well, it seems to me that there are three possible answers to this question: What's the meaning? What's the point of life? One is that there is no、uh, there there is no meaning. There is no meaning to this life. Number two is that we need to create meaning for ourselves. There is no meaning, ultimate meaning. So we need to make life something, about something. And option three says the meaning can only be found in God. Number one, it seems to me that the psalmist is starting with the frustration that life seems to have no meaning, no point. That's why he's asking the question in the first place, isn't he? Show me, O、oh、Lord, my life's end. Let me know how fleeting my life is. He's not sure. He's not sure what the point of life is when death seems so imminent. He says that God has made his life、uh, a mere handbreadth. He says in verse five, handbreadth is the smallest unit in a、uh, Hebrew measurement. The、uh, the 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 length about four of、uh, four fingers. The span of our lives, he says, is nothing before God. And then later on. He says that now that life is like a breath that we take. I looked it up. About average average adult takes about eighteen thousand to thirty thousand breaths a day. If we take、uh, if we take the average of the two, twenty four thousand breaths a day. You can check my math. I think it's seven hundred and twenty thousand breaths a month. That's two hundred and sixty two point eight million breaths a year. If we live for seventy five years. That's about seven, nineteen point seven trillion breaths throughout lifetime, and I've just heard a podcast, a lecture on、uh, on, on our lifespan, how it's changing, how average lifespan will be probably for young people one one hundred and three. That's immeasurable、uh, breaths in a lifetime. A man's life is but a breath. The psalmist says it's not just short. Really, it's insignificant. It appears and disappears, and nothing is affected by it. It, it leaves no trace of it having been there. Perhaps that's why he says in verse six that、uh, life is like a phantom. It's a ghostly existence. It's inconsequential. Perhaps he's looking back, and he's regretting just all the efforts. All the hard work that he had put in to, in his life, and regretting it, at the end of his life, he thinks, "Well, what was that all about?" He can't take anything with him to the other side. Show me, O、oh、Lord, my life's end. What's the point of all this? He asks. Albert Camus、um, wrote a famous essay called "The Myths of Sisyphus." Um, where he recalls the tale of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was known to be the craftiest of man in Greek mythology,、uh, tricking even the gods.、Um, in the end, however, Persephone, the the, the queen of the underworld,、uh, consigns Sisyphus to this endless task of rolling this giant rock upon a hill, only to watch it come down again. He has to repeat this task. Again and again for eternity. That's the that's the punishment. 
There's no point in doing it, is there? Everything is futile. And Camus says that's what life is. There's no point. It's an incredibly depressing view of life. Things will come to an end. All things are futile. And he actually says, well, there is, in recognizing that there's no point to life, in looking back to this life, there is this absurd joy, he says, in recognition of that all that is futile, all the tasks that are created by mankind itself, the work is human work, should bring joy, he says. At the end of his famous essay with these, uh, with him is uh, these famous two lines. The struggle itself towards the height is enough to fill a man's heart. The struggle itself is enough to feel, fill a man's heart. One must imagine Sisyphus to be happy. He called that absurd joy. I think it's really incredibly absurd because I don't see any joy in that at all. I can't imagine Sisyphus being happy, doing the endless task of the meaningless task that he has. The psalmist doesn't seem to be content with that, which is why he's speaking to God. What is the point of this life, he asks. So there's Camus and there there are others like Sartre who say that there's no meaning. But there are others who say, actually, um, we can't be content with saying that there is no meaning to life. Nietzsche actually thought that. that, there is no, uh, uh, that, that he, he says we shouldn't be content uh, with no meaning. He says that people, uh, we shouldn't just languish in the meaninglessness uh, of life. You know, Nietzsche is the famous guy um, uh, who, who, um, who, said, uh, you know, who said God was dead. And if you, if, you, if you take God out, there's no meaning, there's no good, there's no evil. But he says that we then have to create meaning for ourselves. He wrote of the courage of, pointing, uh, of staring into nothingness and creating something out of it. Roughly put, he called that man who can create Meaning, who can create what is good and bad out of nothingness, Superman. That's what Superman uh, was about, he says. This is um, what he wrote. Sorry, this is a very heavy, um, quote-driven um, uh, text. I hope, you, um, I, well, I hope you'll find them meaningful. He, this is what he wrote. Heavy courage, my brethren. He has heart who knows fear but vanquishes it, who sees the abyss but with pride. Who sees the abyss but with eagle's eyes, he who with eagle's talents grasps the abyss, he has courage. What he's saying is, is he, the, the man is courageous if he's able to stare at the pit of nothingness and grasps it and says, I am going to make something out of this. This is what courage is all about, he said. So various people have tried to give life meaning to life. I think that's what Shakespeare meant when he wrote, life's an uncertain voyage. It's what you make out of it. It's what you travel. That's what gives meaning. And you see some of that, I think, in this psalmist as well, in verse 6, when he writes, well, people rush about. They do this and that. Heap up wealth. Heaping up wealth. Isn't that what people do to make their lives meaningful? We work. We heap up wealth. We set goals in our lives that give meaning to our lives. We busily do this and that. We rush about. 
attempting to make this life meaningful. I quoted from um, Alain de Button um, last week um, from Religion for Atheists. He wrote another interesting book called um, uh, Pleasures and Sorrows of, of Work. In writing this book, he followed different people of different profession. Um, people who can tuna, who catch tuna, and all the way to uh, the processing tuna. Um, biscuit developer, career counselor, a rocket scientist, a painter, an accountant, inventor, and other things, other people. Uh, and there he writes exactly what this psalmist says, that people rush about doing this and that to make their lives meaningful. And there's a lengthy quote from here. Our work will have at least distracted us. It will have provided us a perfect bubble in which to invest our hopes for perfection. It will have focused our immeasurable anxieties on a few relatively small and achievable goals. It will have given us a sense of mastery. It will have, give a, it will have made us respectably tired. What he says is, we have these small-scale achievable goals in our daily lives because those things, achieving those things, gives us meaning. In our lives, I, I, I just remember um, this thing. Uh, he followed um, an accountant, uh, an executive in a big accounting firm, and how she travels through the tube, um, the, the MTR equivalent. And she's dressed like a professional, but she's almost indistinguishable from any other professional traveling in the tube at the rush hour. But as she gets off the tube, goes into her work, her building, which is impressive. And then she goes through her door, and she has this desk with her name and her title. It gives meaning to her life. This is why she exists. This is what she does every day. Work gives meaning, he says. People rush about doing this and this and that. Heaping up wealth. But once again, the button and also the psalmist has seen the limits of doing this. The limits of work. Poignantly, the button says that he, the work is dis, it has distracted us from death. The work has distracted us from asking the ultimate question of what's the meaning, what's the point of all of this, life as a whole. Um, and he ends that book, actually, not with uh, uh, these uh, 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 reflections on these different jobs, but he ends his book at the graveyard of airplanes, uh, looking at the abandoned airplanes and their parts scattered all over the desert, he wonders how many of their makers thought about uh, the, the height of their technology, all the effort that they put in will end up just thrown away in a desert. He wonders um, how they boasted of the genius of the technology will just end up destroyed. He then muses on the finitude of humanity. Um, he, there's this line, he says, he, the, the, our work allows us to mingle ourselves promiscuously with events for letting us wear the thoughts of our own death and the destruction of our own enterprise with lightness 
as mere intellectual propositions. It allows us to live. It allows us to uh, distract ourselves. Um, it allows us, allow us to, uh, to, to, uh, to focus our minds on achievable goals. In a way, what he says is that life distracts us. The nature of daily press and grind is real. The nature of what you do, the report that you have to finish, the client that you have to meet, the, 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 um, the little things that you have to do, it, is the mo- it becomes the most important thing in your life at that moment, and it distracts us from the, the, the ultimate question. Wealth, holidays, deadlines, good meals, and I think that's a big thing in, in Hong Kong. Good meals, uh, good restaurants, enemies, friends, meetings, family, even gold medals in this Olympic. It becomes, this becomes the stuff of life. And we mistake in it uh, for ultimate things as if it is going to go on. It has ultimate significance, but life is limited in its span. If its meaning is to be found, it has to be found somewhere else. Each man's life is but a breath. It's repeated twice in this psalm. And of course, this psalmist, even as he prays, he realizes something very important. And the content of the psalm then changes entirely in verse 7. He confesses there, But now, Lord, what do I look for? And he comes to the realization, my hope is in you. The psalmist began with a doubt of the purpose of it all. But he understands that his doubt was founded on the wrong understanding. The meaning is found on the stuff of this earth. In wealth, security, comfort. How he realizes that such things are not the end. When you die... At the frontier of life, at the precipice of life, is not death, is not nothingness, but it is God. God is there. God will meet you when you die. And what matters above all, then, is the relationship with God. So he confesses, he changes his mind immediately. He goes into confession in verse 8. Save me from all my transgressions and do not make me the scorn of fools. The fact that, that death is at the, at, at the, at, at death we will meet God is good news for some, but it's also bad news for others because there will be judgment. So he sings in, in verse 11, you rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man is but a breath. What he's saying is our relationship with God, how we will face our maker, then becomes the most important thing. The psalmist has looked down on life as a whole from a distance, and he has gained perspective. Perspective that he's not, he's part of this world, but he's also a traveler. Um, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Psalm 84, that we are sojourners. So he sings in verse 12, For I dwell in you, with you as an alien, as a stranger, as, as all my fathers were. We live here, but we're travelers through. We will meet God in the end. That's our destination. So here's some perspective. 
the significance that we give to our job titles, whatever it is, senior manager, partner, professor, lecturer, junior executive, pastor, missionary, or whatever it is, it's blown out of proportion. The significance of what you do is blown out of proportion. You live here, but you don't belong here. Ultimately, you will not think about all these things. You'll not think about your job titles. You'll not think about that sale that you blew as you, uh, as, as you went out. You will not think about that when you die. I'm not saying, then, is your work is not important. I'm not saying that your life has no significance. But I am saying that you have to live your lives in front of God. You have to live your lives for God and for God alone. You have to work for God and for God alone because that will give you ultimate significance. We need to prepare ourselves for that ultimate meeting. And I'm not saying that you you have to live morally. It's much bigger than that. It's living in front of God. It includes us being moral, but it's not the end. It's about knowing that our work has ultimate significance insofar as they live, they are lived in front of God. Your life is finite, uh, finite. Your work is finite. But all that finite, finite things will have infinite meaning in front of infinite God because God constantly gives you a choice every moment of your life to live your lives joyfully or dourly, thankfully or grudgingly, honestly or dishonestly, honorably or dishonorably, lovingly or with hate, selfishly or for others and for God, for yourself or for God in the end. Although everything will end how you have done them, why you have done them, and for whom you have done them, will have ultimate significance. Psalmist knew that his life was going to end, that his meaning of his life had to come from God. Once again, we look to verse 7. But now, O Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Um, Life lived without God is meaningless. Summary. Uh, life without uh, work without God is really just a distraction. Only God can give you ultimate meaning. And when you're in deathbed and not caring, an inkling of but the house or the work or um, all the things that you've done, I hope you'll be able to say in all of your life that your hope had always been in God that that's where you drew your significance. That's why you worked. That's why you lived. Show me, O Lord, my life's end and the number of our days. My hope is in you. I hope that will be the prayer for all of you as you live all of your lives. Amen.